0: Listener Production. It's scary and it's exciting and it's invigorating and it's frustrating and it's it's all of those things at once. But it's uh it's it's having a crack and having the gumption to get up there and literally pick up the phone and make that phone call to Scott Phillips and say, Scott, it's key. How are you going? I'm starting business and I'd like some business from you.
1: G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, the good oil is giving someone the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And that's exactly what we try to do with this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. And as usual, today's guest is someone who does really know what's going on. He is the CEO of a really interesting business in a fascinating part of the Australian economy. He is Keith Johns, CEO of Pioneer Credit. Keith, thank you for joining us on The Good Oil. Thanks so much, Scott. Pleasure to uh, be with you. Mate, I'm really, really glad I'm speaking to you. Mate, let's, let's kick off big picture and we'll, we'll move from there. But uh, we, I'll, I'll date snap this because uh, such is the moving feast of the Australian economy right now. We're recording this in the middle of April 2023. Uh, hopefully, uh, when people look back, we'll be able to see what happened since. But, uh, Keith, uh, how from, from your particular vantage point, we'll talk about your business in a minute, but from your particular vantage point, uh, how, what are you seeing in the economy? Is it business as usual? Are things changing? Is it improving? Is it deteriorating? From your particular perch, what are you seeing? Look, as you said, Scott, it's a
0: really interesting time. I mean, from our perspective, we deal with consumers uh, that are generally not homeowners, uh, but come out of the big banks. So good quality consumers. And what we're seeing at the moment is clearly signs of distress. The average payment that we receive from our customers has decreased over the last 12 months, about 8%. On the flip side, everyone's got a job. So we've got this really unique situation at the moment where there's all of this stress in the
1: economy, but everyone's still employed. It's, it's quite unique. You say over the last 12 months they have about 8%. Is there any sign that that's either accelerating or or, or, or you know, is it lessening off or is it business as usual? I'm just curious. Obviously, as rates have gone up over that last 12-month period, um, they've, they've kind of stepped up bit by bit by bit. Now, as you say, they're not necessarily homeowners, but maybe inflation is, is taking a bite out of people, and that continues pace. Is there any change in the more recent times, mate, or is is, is the trend pretty consistent? Yeah, look, it's been pretty consistent. Um
0: I suppose the, the bit of the trend that we pick up is when we're speaking to our customers, we've got about 250,000 customers and about 40,000 that are, that are actively paying us on a regular basis. Um, and when we speak to those guys, you know, they talk to us about how they're concerned, about how they're worried about the future. And I think the real problem uh, for the consumer, Scott, is going to come when this mortgage cliff comes there are a number of people, a lot of people, that have investment properties, and that's going to impact the rental market heavily.
1: And that's your kind of. Sounds like from what you were saying, most of your customers aren't homeowners, so that's very much your your sweet spot. Let let's go to let's go to Pioneer Credit, and we'll kind of work from there. So, uh, you guys are in the in the debt collection business. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. You also, uh, what I know, is the purchased debt ledger business. So there's, there's going to be a lot of terms and bits and pieces. We'll try and keep it really simple. Maybe you can just describe for me. Uh, what Pioneer Credit does and what the overall credit collection industry, you and your peers, do in the Australian economy? For sure. So Pioneer
0: is a pure play debt purchaser. We don't do work for any third party. So all of the assets that we own, we we buy uh, by ourselves and we work with those customers over time to get them back on track. So where we specialise, Scott, is we predominantly buy out of the big banks. We don't buy payday lending or any of those you know, really lower quality credit products, we're looking for consumers that can get ahead. That's important for us because in times like this, um, obviously you'll appreciate if, if things get really rough for the consumer, that's going to impact our business. So the resilience in our business is built around good quality consumers that have capacity and have the ability to get ahead. So in terms of the economy, the, the sector is incredibly important. Um, you know, there is it. It spans the breadth of the economy, from uh, agencies dealing with small businesses trying to recover two or three thousand dollars at a time, to organisations like ours, like Pioneer Credit, where we invest tens of millions of dollars each year in buying portfolios off the banks. And the reason the banks sell it to us is because we're better at managing consumers in hardship or suffering some form of financial distress than they are. So. As your readers or sorry your listeners will will no doubt appreciate, banks are really good at lending money,
1: um, and we're really good at servicing that. If you get into some form of trouble, so you talked about purchasing debt versus collecting on behalf of others. And again, I know you're industry in a little bit, so I'm going to try and describe it in my words and get you to tell me where I'm wrong, or maybe maybe add some add some colour, add some value to it. So if a if a debt is not being able hasn't been able to be collected or isn't being collected by a major institution in this case a bank as you said um, those institutions have two options they can simply say you know what we're going to sell this debt to someone I I owe you $100 Uh, you, you, you know I haven't paid you back you can sell that to somebody else and say you know what I'm washing my hands if you collect it if you get some money for it then good on you or you can actually collect on behalf of them, where they can use a, a third-party organisation. Say we will, we will try and collect that debt, and if we do, we'll get a payment, or we'll get paid per per effort. Um, so there's kind of I don't know if it's a commission or whether it's a pay per effort, but there's those two sides, right? One is collect on behalf of someone else as a, as an agent. The other is to actually purchase the debt, take it over, and then see what you can recover. Is is that is that a reasonable summation of the industry? Uh, 100%. Yep. No, that's that's bang on. I think the thing to note,
0: though. Scott is in the industry now, and we've actually only just seen it last week with the government's announcement on robo-debt. You know, the the history of this industry was built up through outsourcing and, and you know, agencies earning a commission. Um, I think we're seeing a pretty significant move away from that, and it's going to accelerate from here. And the reason for it is, um, when we buy the debt, we've got much more onerous obligations on us about the way we conduct ourselves, and, and the licensing obligations, but also with the groups that we deal with with the banks, they're pushing down compliance and governance and regulation very heavily. So there's actually much more protection for the consumer in having the account sold to someone like us who has to maintain a uh, an incredibly high level of standards to keep the uh, keep the relationship with banks and uh, and
1: regulators. Uh, um, going forward so we can continue to invest in the sector. I want to get back to regulations, mate. But let me let me ask about, you know, plenty, plenty of people listening now will be saying, well, what do you mean the banks aren't very good at collecting debts? I mean, it it's, it would seem like, and I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing the banks, by the way, but it would seem like kind of core, core business, right? You, if you're in the business of lending, you're in the business of collecting at the same time. Uh, it would probably surprise a whole lot of people to know, you know, maybe, okay, maybe you buy a debt off Telstra, maybe you buy it off a gas company, maybe you buy it from somewhere else. But I would have thought our listeners would have thought, gee, the big banks—they'd they, be this would be their bread and butter. Um, why? Why is there such a gap or an opportunity for you guys? Why do the banks find it easier to say, you know what, just pioneer can look after it?
0: So, look, I think the banks are, are good at certain parts of collecting debt. So, if you've got a, a large secure debt, whereby, uh, for the benefit of your uh, your listeners, you know, there's there's a mortgage over a company or there's a mortgage over some assets, they're good at managing that. And it's not just about collecting the debt, Scott. It's actually about managing a consumer through it. Banks don't want defaults. They're not looking to, to, to wind you up. They're not looking to harm you. They actually want to get paid and they want you to succeed so you can borrow more money. Yeah, right. Yeah, but at a retail level across credit cards and personal loans, there's smaller, smaller accounts. So our average customer owes about $11,000 per product with us okay? And banks aren't expert at that. So, what they do is they sell it to someone like us. They trust us. We've been dealing with them for a very, very long time. And then they recycle that capital back into their lending operations, which is what they're actually expert at.
1: Talk to us too about what it means to buy a debt. I mean, again, I'm a bit more familiar with this. I've held a shares in a couple of your competitors at different times in my investing career. Um, the so I know a little bit of it, but how do you buy a debt i mean just could talk us through what what that looks like and and, and how the kind of the, the mechanics work the banks
0: generally sell their accounts at 180 days past due so from the date someone stops paying or doesn't meet their minimum monthly payment 180 days later that's when they sell the the accounts and what that looks like is we get offered uh, a big basket of of accounts, let's say a thousand at a time. And we would use our analytics to work out what the propensity to pay is and to heal is. And then we we, um, sign an agreement with those banks and they become ours. And from that point in time, the consumer's our customer, and then we deal with them as if they're our customer. So, we send them a welcome to Pioneer credit letter, um, you know, we understand you. Uh, you have an account that's outstanding, and let's work with it together.
1: When it comes to that process, mate, obviously, and, and I don't know that, I'm not going to ask you to disclose your numbers, of course, but but some sort of industry average, I'm just going to pick some numbers, you can kind of tell me whether we're roughly right. You know, I, I owe the bank $100, bucks, uh, 6 months, 180 days, as you say. I haven't paid them anything. They're like, all right, Phillips is, Phillips is not paying him back here. We don't want to go and collect for him. We're going to get Pioneer to do it for us. Now, obviously, if I owe the bank $100, you're not going to pay that $100 because A, if you only get back what you pay for it, then there's nothing in it for you. Also too, I guess you've got to figure that me and the other 999 people in that bundle, some of them aren't going to pay back or they're going to take a very long time to pay back. And so you've got to pay a price that gives the bank as much as they want. But also is cheap enough for you to make a margin after you've spent all your time and effort and staff costs collecting. Knowing again, you won't collect some of that either. Um, so, can you kind of just get, uh, again a ballpark, or, or is, is, I don't want you to be a specific pioneer unless you have shared this publicly already. But um, what, what sort of metrics are we looking at? How, how would you kind of describe what that looks like for our listeners? For sure, we we do
0: disclose our metrics, so I'm happy to talk to them. Uh, happy to talk to them, Scott. Okay, great. Uh, in our business, so we pay on average about eighteen cents in the dollar. For the customer accounts that we buy, um, and we seek to to earn back about two and a half to three times our money. Right. Okay. Uh, now that's over a period of four to six years. Some yeah. of it can go much longer. Yeah. Um, so it's not a uh, it's not a windfall <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. And we operate a really uh, a really costly business. There is a lot of governance in this business. There's a lot of compliance, and our consumers. All look the same, Scott. You'll appreciate this when I say it. What happens with people is um, they go along with life and they're living to the limit. You know, they've got a $10,000 credit card, they use that each month, and then they have a life event death, divorce, sickness, might have lost their job, uh, increasingly domestic violence. And it's that event that stops them or uh, stops them from paying for some period of time. So most people out of the big banks don't get in trouble simply because they overspent. They get in trouble because of another reason. And what they need to, to get through that generally is time, and that's why it takes us time to uh, to work with those consumers and for them
1: to start paying back. Let me throw a, a, something directly at you. Uh, the debt collection industry is is – in public opinion, in, in public uh, uh, you know, fiction, uh, the, the bloke in the corner who'll, who'll break your kneecaps if you don't pay back, that kind of stuff. Um, when you said welcome to Pioneer Letter, um, I imagine that some people aren't as happy to get a welcome letter as, as they might for other things, for example. Uh, being welcomed to to a debt collection agency is not uh, the sort of letter most people want. Though, as you say, you, you try and make a find a way for them to get through, which I, I know actually goes really well for a lot of people. But maybe you can just talk to the industry's reputation and the reality of that. And I imagine it, you know—there's a casual barbecue you go to. What do you do for a quid? Oh, you, you know, on the bike who sends out those letters to collect money from you when you defaulted on your bank? It's—it's um, it's an industry that, as you say, is important. It's important for the banks. It's important for the consumers. But it has got a, a reasonably bad public. I want to say reputation because I don't mean about you guys, but the perception isn't always of a highly professional, well-regulated system because of some of that payday lending you mentioned, the the, the shady bloke in the corner of the pub. And I know that's obviously a, you know, a stereotype, but maybe you can just talk to the industry itself and, and the reputation and, and how you kind of deal with that sort of stuff.
0: For sure. Um, without sort of uh, diminishing what you've just said, I think it's true of every industry. So if I look at sport, for example... There are, you know, there's a really bad reputation that sits around some parts of sporting codes. NRL has its issues, AFL has its issues. Um, and, and we're the same. Uh, what I would say is that it's confined to an exceptionally small part of our industry. And unfortunately, it's that part of the industry that, um, that, that you know, gives everyone a bad name. But that's true for almost all parts of society. You know, the more reputable players of which Pioneer is absolutely one uh, in this space, are so far ahead of regulation in terms of minimum standards as that it's not even a consideration in the context of our business. You know, we're, we're miles ahead of of what the minimum standards are. And so for us, we work hard on on explaining that and then telling that message uh, across a range of factors. Customers need to know that they can trust us because otherwise they won't talk to us. Um, the markets, in our case, need to know because we, we want their support in the stock market. And of course, the banks won't sell to you unless you're squeaky clean. And uh, and subsequently, there's really only a couple of players at the moment that the banks will sell to, of which Pioneer is obviously one of them.
1: I'm curious, mate, why you only buy from the banks. I know some of your competitors do buy utilities or other things. Um, and also, you don't you don't click on behalf of others. That I assume both of those decisions are very, very specific strategic decisions. Um, maybe just talk to us about the different parts of the industry and and why Pioneer's chosen to deal only with the banks. What I like about the banks is that they're entirely
0: predictable. So what that means is, in our business, what we're buying is entirely predictable. So if you think about the Australian banking sector, we've got four banks. They're all the same bar the colour of their jumper. They all sell exactly the same product to exactly the same consumer at exactly the same price, okay? So because their origination is and their processes and systems are the same, what comes out the other end is a really, uh, you know, really um, neat group of consumers that we can work with and we're really good at working with that. In terms of why we don't buy utilities and telco and anything else, um, we're not good at it, you know, we're not... We're good at building relationships with people, which
1: is obviously more um, um, akin to larger type amounts rather than ah, the smaller ones. Yeah, okay. So $100 phone bill is different from, as you say, an $11,000 average a credit card or personal loan collectible, a very different part of the market. From the, Even though it feels like the same kind of thing, uh, the amount of money the type of person sounds particularly different. Absolutely.
0: And in terms of... Uh, you know, payday or the like, as I've spoken to before, that's not our wheelhouse. You know, we're not about, this is not a business that's focused about extracting as much money out of you today, Scott. It's a business focused on building a relationship with you so you can get back on track. We'll get paid. There's no problem there. We need you to get
1: paid or to be able to pay and be happy about it. Uh, and that that's what our aim is. I'm thinking, if you're a business like yours, mate, you got a you're ASX listed, as you've said, uh, you therefore are expected to grow. I'm sure you've got your own growth expectations of yourselves. Um, is there some discipline required? I imagine. I imagine there are more than one conversation you have with someone in your team, or a director, or a fund manager, or something at some point who says, "But you could just go and do that thing." There's a, there's a market out there, and the banks are a certain size, but there's overseas or there's other sectors or there's you know at some point there are a couple of players as you say you guys end up you know butting heads on for the same volumes i guess the volumes grow slowly over time but there must be some uh thought somewhere in the organization above or below saying well we could just go and do this or why don't we go and investigate that um you know that that kind of idea of an adjacent market that is big and and might give you some sort of turbocharged growth how do you i guess consider those options how do you remain disciplined in the face of them
0: yeah so look discipline i think in financial services business and particularly in small financials comes through uh the way people are rewarded so in our business no one in leadership is entitled to a short-term incentive oh so we can have a cracking year this year and that's fantastic but no one gets a reward for that what we do have is a a leadership and executive that's rewarded through long-term incentives and those incentives generally roll off. So they're generally paid out over three to five years. So we, we've we always been like that, and that creates incredible discipline. And then inside of the way we construct that, you know, the CFO should be the most conservative, so he gets most <laughs> of his in five years, which right, he, okay. which he uh, thinks is unfair, <laughs> compared
1: to the, the COO
0: that's responsible for driving the business. And she gets most of hers in three years. So there's tension through the... Uh, uh, through the process. And I, I sit in the middle, I've got to try and balance the, uh, you're, the you're the referee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm the referee. <laughs> correct. So, uh, yeah. that's, uh, that, that's a, that's one way mm-hmm. of ensuring that it happens. The other is, look, there's plenty of growth in the market for us at the moment. I mean, the non-banks. So the guys that sit just below the banks who we also deal with, um, there's, there's plenty of growth in that market. They've written a lot of business, um, and uh, you know, so there's there's lots of growth for us for the next couple of years. Beyond that, we've we've got plenty of growth opportunities, and they come around how we how we deal with our consumers
1: and the relationship we've got with them. But we're uh, we're a while away from that yet. For our listeners, I I didn't know. I, I'm not a pioneer shareholder for the record. I didn't know about the incentive plan. I just want to I just want to call out as someone who's a you know an investor and an investment advisor uh, in my day job. Uh, having no short term incentive is something that many, many, many more businesses should do. And having it roll off over three to five years is also something else. I am, I mate, huge, huge credit from me. Um, now, a lot of fundies would like shorter term incentives because it means the share price might pop if things go really well and they want to short term trade this stuff. But at the Multi we're long term investors. And I'm, uh, that, that, I am that haven't looked at the details of your plan, but that sort of thing is exactly what I think many, many, many more companies should do. Um, so, mate, just, just for, for, the, for the benefit of the listeners, this is exactly the sort of plan you. You should be looking for from a company you're investing in. Um, and a huge, huge props to you and, and your business for doing exactly that because it really does focus on building long-term value. Again, as you say, probably even more important in financial services where you get in trouble more quickly than most businesses can getting it wrong. Uh, but I, I just, yeah, I just want to give you give you a wrap and, and again use that as a, a, a teachable moment, as the cool kids say, uh, for our listeners just to, to make that point as well because that's exactly if you're a long-term investor and you should be um, the sort of the sort of plan the sort of approach we think that. All businesses should take so congratulations and well done on doing that appreciate it thank you let's go to the, the back to the economy because we are in a situation where uh, obviously things are changing really rapidly and i gotta figure you guys have got a lot of tap dancing to do to work out how much to pay for origination to work out for for the the debt you're purchasing, sorry, Um, how much you can collect in a very rapidly changing environment. So I'll I'll ask a couple of questions on this one, mate. The first one is, how do rising interest rates impact a business like yours? I mean, at one level, maybe it throws more people into, uh, you know, default or or, or not paying back, so it gives you more customers. On the other hand, you've got a cost of capital because you're, as you say, paying some money now, getting it back over two, three, four years. So that matters as well. How do interest rates impact on, on credit collection, debt collection businesses?
0: Yeah, so certainly in in our business, I mean, ours is a capital intensive business. Uh, we have a portfolio of some you know three hundred odd million dollars uh, as as is what it's carried at. And we've got a we've got a lot of debt that finances that. Uh, so rising interest rates do have an impact on us at a corporate level. Um, so we don't like those, just like no one, <laughs> no else? one else likes exactly. them. Yep. Um, on the on the flip side, with the consumer and. and you know, to your point, Scott, this is what it's really all about. The impact to them is is varied. You know, so we're seeing it come through the increase in rental costs. Um, so that is being impacted by interest rate rises. It's also being impacted by shortage of supply, um, and we're also reading now, of course, about Airbnb and the actual uh, the impact that's having on the sector where people are doing short-term uh, rentals. So that's that's uh, that's a big impact, and then of course. It is the inflationary aspect. You know, it is not all um, driven by supply chain type issues. In fact, very little of it is, of course, now. It was a very convenient uh, um, argument for a long period of time for the government. Uh, But, uh, you know, small business has extra cost in it. And uh, and that's part of that is interest rates, and that's really uh, that's
1: really flowing through to the consumer. Hmm. How, how do you how do you manage your business in that context, mate? You've got to look forward, I guess, to think about you're buying some debt today, or you bought let's go back, you bought debt two years ago. I don't. I, I'm going to assume, unless you guys are Nostradamus and have a crystal ball that works, unlike mine, you didn't think. gee, you know what? By the time we get to the middle of 2023, inflation will be six and a half percent, and interest rates will have gone from point one to three point six. Um, you know, you have to allow for a range of scenarios, I guess. And then now you're buying debt today, tomorrow, next week, again, on the same sort of questions of how long does it take to recover and what will things look like by then? How much more likely or less likely are those customers to actually repay the debt? How do you, how do you go about kind of – I only use analytics to work out how much you think you can collect on, on, on an average uh, debt in an average period of time. This is far from, from average. So we look at a range of things. I mean
0: uh – The first of all, as we look at origination, so has anything changed about the way someone is originating? Because if they're trying to grow their business simply by lending more money, that's going to mark down the value of it to us. So are those standards or do they remain? And then in terms of how we we price our investments, we take, generally speaking, the most negative outlook that we can find. Uh, from any of the economic forecasters, and there's some pretty negative, uh, yeah, uh, there are. negative outlooks there. Yeah. Um, I mean, we we obviously avoid people calling for uh, absolute Armageddon, but, but outside of that, we take that and we feed that into our modelling. So we've assumed uh, significantly higher um, unemployment than what we have today, you know, 3.5%, you know, incredibly low, it's full employment. We've assumed a lot higher than that. Um, we've assumed people will pay less for a longer period of time than what they uh, than what they have been in the past. And then, of course, it's the discipline around your investment committee. You know, our investment committee uh, consists of five members of the executive, of which I'm one, and everyone has an equal vote. And if it's not unanimous, then we don't proceed. Uh, and when you've got people that've got you know, almost all of their wealth or, uh, you know, a very significant part of their wealth tied up in this business, uh, that creates incredible discipline about making sure we're investing with the right, uh, in the right consumers from the right originators at the right price. Um, we don't always get it right, Scott. You know that. That's that's part of business. But um, but I think having that that discipline and people that are invested alongside your uh, your listeners is is critical.
1: I love that. I love the. Uh, I love the any any you know any no vote to no. It gives everyone on the committee a, a veto vote effectively. Um, how do you uh, how do you manage culture in that environment? I, I can imagine there's some. Uh, you mentioned the CFO's job is to be the most conservative, and and the chief operating officer maybe maybe less so. Again, by virtue of the jobs they have, and I'm not necessarily saying how they would otherwise vote on that committee. But I am curious uh, that that internal. Friction. Uh, <laughs> I, does, I, I don't know if it boils over ever or not, but that, that's got to be that's got to be interesting and, and and challenging culturally. So maybe just moving away from pure finance and, and and collections, just to corporate management. How do you how do you manage a team? I, again, I love the idea of everyone's got a veto vote, but it must be frustrating if everyone's there's one person on the committee who almost always votes yes, someone else who votes no more than the rest. Um, you know, there's got to be kind of a look across the table, like, dude, come on, help us out here. How do you, how do you manage culturally in that sort of environment?
0: Yeah. Uh, look, I think with respect to the committee in itself, I mean one of the things is the, the delegations that are set from the board are really prescriptive. So um, you know, there's a certain type of assets that we're allowed to deal in, and there's a minimum return hurdle. So that saves, you know a lot of, uh, a lot of angst for lack of a better description. But in terms of culture, look, our culture is built on um, on being completely open uh, with each other. Being entirely honest and having incredible integrity, um, and we spend a lot of time together. I mean, we we, you know, like most businesses. I mean, I spend more time with my COO my CFO and that team than I spend with my family um, on a daily basis. So we we spend a lot of time together and we we talk things through. But if you don't have respect going into the conversation, your culture will never survive, and uh, and that's the most important thing. So. Um, that's something we don't have to work on. That's something that is just built in, inherent uh, in the people that we uh, certainly that are members of my executive but also in the people we're employed. That's what we're trying to look for. And if you look at our website, what we talk about in our branding is um, is to be good. So our diversity and inclusion uh, inclusion statement, for, for, we call it belonging, the people that we look to employ at Pioneer is people that are founded in good right? I can't, you know, I, I can't cover off everything in your background and nor should I. You have made mistakes as I have. But if you've got good intent, no one can beat that. And that's, uh, that's, that's the big part of our culture that, uh, that we think is, uh, is, is, you know, unassailable. You can't get past that.
1: Yeah, I love that. It's really, really important. It does go to, I think, um, yeah, I, I've, I've always, often had a view that you hire for aptitude and attitude. Uh, and you can teach anyone almost anything else, right? I mean, if you if you don't have an aptitude for it, you're probably not going to be able to do it or, or want to do it. If you don't have the right attitude, then if you... you know, it's always Warren Buffett's quote about, you know, you want someone with integrity and honesty and energy because if they don't have, you know, two of them, the other one will kill you. Um, so that, That's the same kind of idea. Speaking of Buffett for a second, the... Insurance industry is fascinating to me. I know you don't insurance, but by, by way of analogy, um, the the pricing uh, can be hard or soft, as they say. I don't know if you use that language in your business. The idea of sometimes you know just the margins are higher, sometimes they're lower. And if you want to play the game, you have to you have to play the game at the given price. Now, Berkshire Hathaway historically has said. If price is not good, we're just not going to write the policy, and they have a really significantly fluctuating uh, premium uh, line because they just simply say we're not we're not going to play if we if we can't get a good price, and we're okay with that. We're okay with that volatility. Now, Berkshire gets away with it because it's part of the business, and Buffett's got sixty years behind him to say, uh, you know, trust me, I'm doing this thing. How do you guys cope in those sort of environments? I, you know, I, again, I've as I I've sort of held chairs in your competitors at different times in the past, and sometimes pricing is hard, sometimes it's soft, sometimes there are opportunities for margin. How do you work out whether to, you know, I guess, in, again, you're an ASX listed company, right? You've got to explain to the market why revenue is going to fall or profit's going to fall because we can't get the margins that we want. Or conversely, you have to say, well, margins aren't going to be as great because we want to keep the business flowing. We've got costs to pay. How do you manage that where you don't really control the pricing? Uh, effectively, it's a, you know, I've got a saying, you're only as profitable as your least rational competitor allows you to be. Um, how do you How do you manage in that environment?
0: Yeah, I think there's a few things. I mean, the first of it is, um, in in the part of the market that we play substantially, it's an incredibly rational market because there are so few players, and because the banks won't choose just one. So that's another reason we like that, right? So um, you know they'll have at least two on a panel, and uh, and we're on every panel. So so that feels really good, and that sort of feels really nice nice to us. The second is. Um, We do exactly what Buffett does. I mean, we step out of the market and don't buy. Capital preservation, as you would appreciate, is everything. You know, you can never make back what you've lost or never get it back. It's gone. Um, So if you look over our uh, investment in PDPs over the last few years, it has fluctuated and it has been down, but it was down for a reason. And the reason was it wasn't a great time to be investing our money and the banks... We're selling less. They're back to selling now and that's that's good for us. Um, so, you know, very much the same thing. You've got to, uh, you know, if, if, if shareholders are with you for a long period of time, they'll get the value if you look after, uh, after their money and you're a good custodian through all of that period rather than just
1: driving at what's going to deliver next, uh, you know, come 30 June. You are the founder of the business and the managing director. You've 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 had the idea. You've you've got the business up. You've grown it to, as you say, a, a very significant size these days three hundred million dollars. You just mentioned of of debt. Um, uh, maybe just talk talk us through the the idea. Talk us through how you go. I'm always fascinated by people who go from executive roles to to entrepreneurial roles, right? I, I've got a a mate, a, a guy who I co-host the other podcast, Motley Fool Money with, Andrew Page, who went from working for the Motley Fool to go and starting his own thing. He just wanted to do it, right? I'm not necessarily someone who has that burning desire to go and kind of you know do something. I've got a, a good job, I enjoyed. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I try and do as well as I can, and I'm hungry for improvement, but. I don't need to go and jump, you know, to something entirely different, risk it all, and, and you know, and, and go and try and make this great new thing. And you did, and you have, um, which I think is really impressive. What's what was that journey like for you? What was the what was the idea, and then the the first couple of years, few years of, of pioneer like for you?
0: I find it interesting when people refer to me as an entrepreneur because I <laughs> generally don't, and that's okay. because I've only done one thing, right? Which right. is what I'm doing now, and I'll I'll talk you through it. So I my background was debt collection and we did, uh, um, did third-party work, so we got paid just like everyone else. And this is going back, uh, you know, through the 80s, 90s or late 80s, uh, early 90s uh, into the 2000s. And uh, most of our business was focused on healthcare. So if you think about that, um, a large degree of empathy required. People are sick. Paying their bills is not what's on their mind. Getting better is so a large degree of empathy required. And, um, but it was clear that the world was changing back then. Technology was coming, uh, becoming really important and it was very expensive. We had a small business, I think we had 60 or 70 people in Perth, and uh, we had a small operation in Malaysia. And I ended up selling that business to Credit Corp um, and was there for a few years. I, uh, you might recall they got into a little bit of trouble at some period of time. Uh, I got offered the, uh, the CEO's role there. Um, we didn't agree to, uh, to progress with that, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't agree to terms. I wanted to stay in Perth and they wanted someone in Sydney and I left. And at that time, it was 2000 and, uh, 2006, 2007, the GFC, there were a lot of opportunities around and, and I had a little bit of money and I had my CFO with me and we, uh, we wanted to make sort of four or five bets, Scott. Uh, into businesses, so smaller businesses, give them some money, and then bring some discipline to those businesses, some financial acumen, and start to grow them. Uh, but the thing was, I couldn't because I, I I just couldn't risk my capital because I just <laughs> never knew enough, and that's yeah. how I ended up starting Pioneer again.
1: Um,
0: right. So when yeah, when you say entrepreneur, that's why I say it's it's really hard for me to to to. Um, uh, to recognize that or to accept that that's what might i might be because you know all i've done my whole life really is one thing i mean i love this industry and the reason this business is successful is because even through that period when i wasn't in it you know the the people we deal with are friends i've i've dealt with them my whole life um and uh, and we've had a great relationship and a great time and uh and been through a hell of a lot i mean this is a this is a crazy world, the financial world there's there's big ups, there's big downs and there's there's rarely a time when it's just boring um, and uh, if you invest in people and you invest in relationships, uh, you know you can set up a great business again and that and that's what we did and I was very lucky and to have their support and and still do
1: okay, so you say you're not an entrepreneur, but you started the collections business on behalf of other people you sold that you start up another business uh, both times I assume. Day one is an empty office, a computer, and man, I better get some people to kind of do something here with me. Um, that's that—that's the entrepreneurial journey, right? It's, it's, you're, not, you're not buying an existing business and saying, "I will buy Pioneer from somebody else, and I'll go and sit in the big chair and I'll see if I can improve it." Like, and that's entrepreneurial in itself, right? Any successful CEO has that element of that because they need to. Maybe if you're running, you know, Transurban, you don't need to. Although, again, I wouldn't wouldn't say they're not entrepreneurial, but. There's still that element, right? So, so maybe take us all the way back when you started your own collections business in the very first instance. You say, you know what? I'm going to try and make some money for myself. I'm going to run my own business. I'm going to, you know, again walk into an empty office, put a computer there, pick up a phone, and say, well, <laughs> I got to find some debt. I got to find someone to collect it for me. Uh, I got to get someone to pay the bills. What's that? What's that journey like?
0: Uh, it is the most incredible journey that you'll ever go on. I mean, I think that's true of starting any business. And you're right; it's not for everyone. It's, it's scary and it's exciting and it's invigorating and it's frustrating and it's, it's all of those things at once. But it's, uh, it's, it's having a crack and having the gumption to get up there and literally pick up the phone and make that phone call to Scott Phillips and say, Scott, it's Keith, how are you going? I'm starting business and I'd like some business from you. Um, and you get a lot of no's. But uh, then you get the one yes and it's like hitting the perfect golf shot, you know, it keeps you coming, keeps you coming back tomorrow. Um, because you got the one yes, and if you uh, if you work hard enough, um, there's lots of yeses out there because people want to deal with 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 good businesses, and, and Australians are amazing people. I mean, they they want to give the new guy a go. Uh, you know, it's one of the it's one of the things we talk about at Pioneer today is how do you stay fresh, relevant, excited uh, to be dealing with that person that you've been dealing with for the last ten years because they want to give the new guy a go. And we need to keep winning their support because we're not the new guy anymore.
1: I want to finish with a couple of questions uh, about, about uh, Pioneer and then we'll get to our favourite questions at the end, Keith. Um, uh, <laughs> let, let, me, so let me start with the company itself. Um, you guys remain... Uh, earnings negative you're, you're making losses the last few years um, obviously hoping to to grow or turn that around or both um, maybe just again for those who are interested in the company as a, as a listed entity maybe just tell us talk us through the current state of, of the business um, plenty of people will say you know I'll wait till it turns profitable thank you very much you'll say well there's some option here to you know uh, make some money buy at a cheap price until we get to that point but where, where's, where's Pioneer on that journey in your eyes? Yeah uh, look, so
0: we'll be profitable this year, Scott, uh, and I'm talking statutory net profit after yeah. tax, not, mm-hmm. uh, not another type of number <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, that seems to be around Agenda these earnings. days. Yep. Look, Pioneer, uh, Pioneers had, had a, a blessed journey from when it listed in 2014 through to about 2019, um, and in that year we actually um, signed a scheme of arrangement to uh, privatise the business into the Carlisle Group. It was a great scheme. Um, Shareholders had the opportunity to participate. Everything we do is focused on the shareholder. And uh, unfortunately, Carlyle, uh, at the beginning of COVID and through COVID, changed their mind. We ended up, uh, well, they didn't change their mind. They just didn't want to pay for the business. Uh, It was a very expensive exercise for us to get out. We needed to refinance through that period. which was, which was prohibitive. And that's really what's driven the losses in this business over the last couple of years. Operationally, this business has been fantastic. It's not Mr Beat. And uh, and it's continued to have the support and the custom of the, of the banks, which is critical. But we'll be back to profitability, uh, uh, only a, a slight profitability, uh, but we'll be back to profitability for this financial year. And then next year, uh, the outlook's much much brighter as we move to refinancing again and reducing our cost of funds in a in a pretty good market for a business like
1: ours. Uh, in, in that regard, I also might have to say on that on that side. This was the second question I was going to ask you, but uh, there's been there's been a lot of director buying over the last couple of months, and it uh, KR John seems to be the bloke who's doing a lot of the buying. Uh, I, I'm going to suggest to you that that. Uh, Oh, they they say you direct sell for many reasons and buy only for one. Uh, I, I'm not expecting you to say anything different other than uh, you're putting your money where your mouth is from. The look of it.
0: Uh, absolutely. Look, I, I I love this business. I've got incredible uh, uh, faith in in the business and in our people. Uh, it's not all my buying, by the way. There's my two sons that are uh, that are uh, out of uh, out of school and in uni now. I've got jobs, so they're buying as well.
1: So uh, <laughs> on, on Dad's uh, recommendation, yeah. or is it uh, what's the what's the story there? Uh,
0: Well, no, not so much. I mean, they've got their own choices to make and uh, they they talk about it, but it's their decision (laughs) if they press... If they press go, but uh I tell you what, they're pretty
1: tough taskmasters. F- family family dinners you know, take take a very complexion, don't they? Correct. When they when they've got chairs yes, in the business as well. When
0: your son's got five thousand dollars of his hard-earned <laughs> money in it, let me tell you it's uh they're much harder than a fundie with a million dollars or five million dollars
1: invested. I'll bet, I'll bet. But uh, you've been very generous with your time. Let's let's kick off uh, the, our last uh, four questions, our favorite questions. Um a lot uh, yeah, we're on a podcast now, plenty of people listening to podcasts, watching things on TV, streaming, all that kind of stuff reading uh, a lot of book readers among our audience what are you reading watching listening to at the moment
0: yeah so reading um the second tome of hawk by blanche oh, right. uh, his second wife yeah, uh, yeah it's about it's about his leadership through his prime minister years incredible uh incredible read right uh, so really nice enjoying moment. just about through that but really mm-hmm. enjoying that at the moment
1: that's awesome. I'll put that on the reading list. Um, obviously, i get the discussion about trends, and, and generally speaking, the trend people tend to, tend to go to is the one that's in their business, and feel free to do that. Um, but what trends are you watching? What are you seeing out there? What's, what's going on in your business or, or around the world that's kind of captivating you?
0: Probably more, uh, more interested in the health aspects of the world at the moment. I sort of – you know, we seem to be a world that's, uh, that's, that's I don't know, that's confused, and uh, we're trying to we, we seem to be trying to work out a whole range of things. And um, it's all coming back to sort of basic, uh, um, you know, sort of foundational type uh, um, um, thought process now and you're seeing that with health and I think we're seeing with finances. And, you know, I saw a thing on Instagram the other day which said, uh, you know, everyone thought that we're, you know, thinks we're a much smarter people now than we were 40 years ago. I said, but when 40 years ago your car manual said, you know, if it's broken, here's how to fix the valve. And now it says, don't drink the dirty liquid from the battery. <laughs> you know, are we really that smart? So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of this really, uh, you know, this yeah. broad consumer shift, I think, back to foundational type
1: thinking. It, it is fascinating, mate. I, I, I've had something similar. I, I'm astounded at how little I can actually do compared to some of my grandparents, for example, in terms of, you know, my, my mother's father built their house. Now I can, yeah. I can hammer a nail and it's, sometimes it's straight. Um, and look, i got a desk job and I bang away at a keyboard and, you know, it's all it's all fine. But uh, yeah, there, there's, a very, there's a very big difference between, you know, they, they had a very, very, very broad range of skills. I could do a few things reasonably well. Uh, they could do a lot. I think there is something to that broadly as well. And yes, not drinking the battery fluid is a very, very smart idea. Uh, Mate, what advice would you give someone who is interested? Maybe they're finishing uni, maybe they're finishing school, maybe they're looking for a career change, they're saying, you know what, this debt collection business might be okay. What advice would you give people?
0: There's two things I'd say to people. The first is the world's a magnificent place. Go for it. Grab every bit of it that you can. Uh, My wife's got a saying, uh, which her mother said to her, and it was her 80th birthday yesterday, was if you can dance, dance. And we say that to our boys all the time. You know, just... Just go because it's it is you know it, it's an incredible place with incredible opportunity, and the second is is what Buffett says essentially. You know, in our business, I speak to new starters in our business, and they come into our contact center and they say, "I want to be like you, and how do I get ahead?" And I tell them all the same thing: it's application. You cannot beat application. If you work hard, you put your mind to it, you will learn what you need to learn, and you'll be more successful. And and, uh, you know, we've all got so many resources available to us. Um, you know, you've got to do something that's going to
1: differentiate you and uh, an application is, uh, is what I think. I think it's the secret mm-hmm. sauce. Love it. My, my last question is normally, or it still will be, what are you optimistic about? You've given me two very optimistic answers to the advice piece about just going for it and applying yourself. So I love both of those. Uh, but what else? Yeah, I, I, I make the assumption, I'm an optimist by nature, let me say that. And, and most people, if you're running a business, if you're starting a business, if you're owning a business, you can't expect the world to end tomorrow, unless you're in the business of the world ending. So I'm going to assume you're optimistic. And if so, what are you optimistic about?
0: Yeah, look, I am, I am an optimist by nature as well. And uh Um, I'm optimistic about everything, Scott. I mean, like I just said, I I think the world's an incredible place. I think we've, you know, we've come through a tough period. I think we're going to look back on that and go, you know, we built some resilience in our young people through that. We built some understanding that the world's not perfect all the time, and and we built some uh, we built some hope and all of those things. And I, I, you know, I'm incredibly excited by uh, by what's in front of us as a society and. and our young people you know i've got two boys 18 and 20 and uh watching them with their mates and trying to work out what they want to do and how to get ahead is just uh it's incredibly exciting so uh yeah the world the world it's a beautiful place
1: that is a fantastic way to finish uh keith john founder and managing director of pioneer credit thank you for joining me on the good oil absolute pleasure This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.